Welcome to Supply Circles, stories from the innovators, disruptors, and improvers in supply chain management today, brought to you by AI Group. Uh, yes, indeed. I'm James Scotland, coming to you today from the Yungamba language region, and this is Supply Circles, the podcast that asks the question, how can we in Australia create supply chains that are resilient and sustainable at a time when we're implementing the challenges of the three Ds, digitalization, decarbonization, and ongoing disruptions. You know, in the intro, it says we talk to innovators, disruptors, and implementers in supply chains today. Well, today, I am going to speak to the managing director of a small business in Western Sydney that can rightfully claim to be all three. My guest is Mal Hiley, the managing director of Baker and Proven from Western Sydney. I'm quite excited about today's chat. We all know that there are many successful Australian businesses, but we don't usually know the hard work and entrepreneurial actions that go into that success or the way the company has successfully managed the supply side to meet the demand and opportunity side. Baker and Proben is one such business. The backstory is fascinating. Here's the basic. For over 75 years, since 1946 in fact, Baker and Proben have specialised in the manufacture and supply of quality engineering products. It's always been in precision engineering, but in 1975 it aggressively moved to become a modern engineering, machining and fabricating business when it purchased its first CNC machine. And then in 1989, Bacon and Proven became a supplier to the defence industry via a, a contract with the Australian Navy, and it's now a significant and long-term supplier to defence. It's still based in St Mary's from a, a 6,500-square-metre workshop and employs over 80 full-time staff. The company is a well-respected, successful modern engineering business supplying large buyers across the nation. But that's just the basic details. There's a lot more to the Bacon Proven story than the surface story. So welcome, Mal. It's good to have you on the show. Is that the, a good introduction to the business? It's an Australian success story, isn't it? It's 75 years. Yeah, no, it's a great introduction, uh, James, and it's a pleasure uh, to be part of this uh, podcast series. Um, one aspect um, that you didn't touch on in the introduction was it remains uh, an Australian family company. And um, interesting backstory uh, on Arthur Baker and Don Proven, uh, obviously where the name of the company uh, came from. They both, uh, given the fact that we have a significant proportion of our current turnover in defence, both manufacture and uh, sustainment, um, Arthur and Don worked together in the small arms factory in Lithgow in uh, 1942. And they enlisted uh, simultaneously and uh, went and served in New Guinea. Um, and uh, they saw active service there and they said, well, if we get out alive, we'll start a company together. And they did, thankfully, get out alive and they started Baker and Proven uh, in 1946, as you said. But for a company that survived for 75 years, currently active in the defence to have uh, their founders uh, uh, being uh, returned servicemen, uh, I think is a, um, a great uh, touch and fact uh, in terms of the history of the company. Um, and it remains very much a family company in that uh, Arthur Baker uh, was my father-in-law. He ran the company for the majority of its history and then passed over to his eldest son, Peter. Peter ran it. He was a... Um, in the regular army, um, so Baker and Proven has actually had um, family and um, defence leadership uh, for majority of its uh, of its life. And what about you? So uh, you're a son-in-law, but are you an engineer with a business bent or um, a businessman that uh, works in an engineering firm? Well, my background is civil engineering, so um, I had no anticipation uh, of being involved in the family company, um, and I, uh, I, my early uh, career was with the Maritime Services Board uh, in New South Wales, and then had the opportunity to be involved in a staff and management buyout in uh, about 1993, when Premier Griner was uh, running New South Wales as New South Wales Inc. and uh, taking a very commercial approach. And so we, I, me and another fellow, uh, Jim Miller, we set up a 
Uh, we facilitated staff management buyout. We took uh, 10 of the staff and we all were shareholders of the company. We built that up uh, to about 180 staff and ultimately 100 million turnover. We sold that to a national piling and ground engineering company. And then uh, I finally retired uh, in about 2018. Um, so my background is civil. Uh, we were involved in port structures, wharf uh, construction, Sydney, Brisbane, uh, and uh, Melbourne. Um, so once I went into retirement, um, it was really the, the sad passing of Peter Baker, who was the MD of um, Baker and Proven at that time. Uh, he unfortunately passed away in early 2020. And the family asked, uh, you know, I guess given my experience in small business and uh, development uh, of, of companies, uh, would I get involved? And um, my first response was no. Uh, my second response was no. Uh, but ultimately, uh, I said yes. Um, <laughs> they got you in the end. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so the question of am I, an, yes, I'm an engineer, but I'm probably uh, an engineer with an interest in, in business rather than a businessman uh, with an interest in engineering. What's the, um, you're in Western Sydney, and you've been going for a long time, family business. What makes it such a success? Um, well, I think it, it, it's developed capability. Um, we have um, probably not a totally unique, but the combination of large scale, um, you referred in your introduction to a 6,500 square metre uh, workshop facility. So it's a large facility. We... We've got 20 CNC machines. So I think it's probably the foresight uh, of Arthur and Peter to take a few um, considered, um, not, not gambles, but business decisions, which were bold, investing in some significant large equipment, which put them into a... Uh, an area where there was less competition in some of this uh, larger work. So if you sort of say, what's the Baker and Proven sweet spot? Because we have capability in fabrication, machining and fitting, our, our sweet spot would be a job that involved at least two of those disciplines, fabrication and machining or uh, fitting in some combination and tending towards the larger scale um, and therefore larger scale and complex. Um, and that's really been the development phase. I think you referred in 1975, the first CNC machine. Um, when it started out in 46, it was a tool shop, a tool making shop uh, with one machine, which was uh, an orbital grinder, an optical grinder, sorry, an optical grinder. And that's still in the factory now. Um, so it's been sort of retained uh, as a, as a, a, a rec, uh, I guess, a symbol of the start start of the company, but um, I think it was uh, in terms of moving uh, forward over time. It's been making some bold um, decisions uh, in terms of investment, and then having that broader capability uh, in larger scale work. In one of the uh, the early episodes of uh, of Supply Circles, I spoke to Andy Brightmore who's the head of one of Australia's largest food and service companies, uh, Compass Group. They, they service all the mines and messes around Australia and uh, restaurants. And he said that the coming six to 12 months uh, would be about competency based around data and people. Uh, he sort of saw the three working together. Hmm. If you've lasted this long, you've managed to attract some very, very good people. How hmm. do you describe your leadership? Um. Uh, collaborative, I'd have thought. Um, I uh, I think it's always important to clearly have a view to the future. Um, so when I got involved in the middle of 2020, um, it was very much a case of a stock take on where was Baker and Proven at at the moment. What are the typical SWOT analysis, our strengths, our weakness, opportunities and threats. Um, and then saying, well, where would we like to be in the next three to five years? And um, and then charting the course to go where, from where we were to where we would like to be. But doing that in very much um, a collaborative uh, arrangement with our senior management team, our senior leadership team, 
um, so that everyone was on the same page. So I think your question is, what's my leadership style? I think it needs to be forward-looking, um, but very cognizant of how you're going to get there and you need very good people and you need good people who are working well together. So I'm always uh, uh, looking at sporting analogies and why a football team successful and why were the Panthers successful last year? What was the style of mixture of young talent and older experience in the team? Everyone playing their part. Um, so in many senses, I'm part of a team and everyone uh, is part of the team and we all play our positions as well as we can. There's a, a very good book called Peak Performance that looks at uh, uh, successful business, uh, successful sporting teams around the world that have mm. been successful after their superstars have retired, have mm. managed to stay successful over a long period of time. Mm. You know, Michael uh, Jordan retires and the team keeps winning. Um, mm. A Buddhist mm. league in Germany have won for a long time, Williams, Formula One. Uh, and they looked at why that was the case. A bunch of PhD people from New Zealand looked at why that was the case. And they said it was the alignment between the back office and the front office as the mm. alignment between the admin and the, mm. and the sporting field. And you'd say that mm. Penrith have managed to do pretty well there too. Mm. Apologies to all the uh, AFL people listening to this um, to this podcast. But uh, the Penrith Rugby League team managed to get a, uh, a big um, junior base, a smart administration, and a good mm. first-grade team working. Mm. Does that analogy resonate with, with your, your what you're saying about Baker and Bradley? Uh, yeah, if you walked around our factory today, you would um, meet um, five or six um, trades people uh, who have been there for 30 years plus. Um, and that, that's our ex experience in the engine room there. And you would also meet um, quite a cohort of uh, apprentices and younger tradespeople. Um, and when we sort of talk about teamwork, the Bacon Proven, and I'll stick a slide up and it'll have the features of successful teams. Um, and you'll have an image there of the Panthers holding up the trophy. Again, apologies to AFL and uh, soccer followers. Um, but, um, yeah, I think we do reflect that um, healthy blend of experience and young talent coming through. If, uh, if you retired and came into the business in uh, early 2020, uh, you came in at the start of COVID. Hmm. What lessons did COVID teach you and teach Bacon Bradley? Um, well, I think what it would teach anyone is try and be – you can never be prepared for the unexpected. Um, but you do need to react to the circumstances you're faced with. Um, and so what it isn't, it's not business as usual, clearly. Um, you've got to react uh, to the changing circumstances. Um, and you go into survival mode uh, effectively. Um, so um, in terms of lessons from that period, I think it was uh, to be able to pivot fairly quickly. And I think that was evidenced by other companies who went into manufacturing products which were needed um, in response to the COVID uh, uh, pandemic. Uh, so that was medical supplies, whatever else. And you can sort of see some uh, companies that weren't involved in medical supplies pivoting into uh, manufacturing medical supplies. Um, in Baker and Proven's case, we didn't really have that opportunity. Um, and it was a case of um, uh, battening down the hatches, maintaining the supply uh, lines where we could, um, but also being very cognizant about our cost base um, and uh, you know, managing through as best we could. I'm thinking about the fact that you had a whole career prior to COVID. So you had a whole business career. You've been through lots of different changes. You've been mm. through digitalization and commercial uh, and computerization, all sorts of things uh, prior to COVID. And then you got faced with this quite unique set of, of circumstances. Did you fall back on some basic business um, tenets that you believed in? Or did you say, no, this is brand, this is blue sky, this is, 
blue ocean type stuff. My question is, did you fall back or did you say, no, I've got to see it totally different? Um, I think if you're in business, you need to have a positive view about the future. I, I think that can be mixed with clearly a degree of caution, but um, you don't see a lot of pessimists in business, I don't think. Um, so therefore, I think you need to be able to um, look at what is possible. Um, now, in a difficult circumstance like that, um, uh, it's uh, what what uh, what are the opportunities that we may be able to create moving forward? But I think it was very much, as I said earlier, is batten down the hatches uh, and uh, secure our uh, position for the future. But um, there was a, one of the consequences was okay, supply lines from overseas are challenged. So therefore, there was a natural refocusing on uh, manufacture in Australia. So there was a positive. Um, it was a, the language of sovereign capability and defence uh, was was emerging at the same time. So therefore, if you're a, a capable company with a good track record in manufacturing, when overseas supply lines uh, are less certain, and there's a an intent uh, for sovereign capability, then you've got to have a positive view about the future because that's playing straight into our strengths. Um, then it becomes a case of how do you convert that uh, and nothing in defence happens quickly. Um, but um, there was certainly uh, a lot of reaction uh, from people who were sourcing materials from overseas or products from overseas manufactured products from overseas uh, to seeing where they could get them manufactured uh, in Australia. Yeah, it's a real focus. So um, we'll, we'll come back to the supply side in, in, in a minute, but the markets that Baker and Proven are in, um, do you want to just talk about that for a minute? You're, you're, you've got mm. the defence industry, but you've also got some other big um, uh, big markets, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, typically, defence uh, would represent 40 to 45 percent of our turnover um, but it's also important to make the distinction between manufacture and sustainment um, manufacturing defense for us has been sporadic uh, we've, we've had some significant programs um, the most recent significant program was the supercat vehicles where we assembled 89 uh, supercat vehicle uh, vehicles for supercat uh, commando vehicles uh, back in about 19, uh, 2015, 16. So they're vehicles, they're, they're military yeah. vehicles. Yeah, so they were army vehicles. Uh -huh. um, about two years ago, we manufactured um, the MCA array uh, frames to go into the nose of the Collins-class submarines for TALUS. And that was an interesting case where TALUS had an internal debate whether they could get these reasonably complex uh, items manufactured in Australia to the standard and cost that they could get them manufactured in the UK. And they had the first one manufactured in the UK, but the other three manufactured by Baker and Proven. And they were exceptionally um, generous in their praise and recognition for the quality uh, and the cost uh, of what we were able to achieve there. But coming back to your question, which was around markets, um, and the distinction between manufacture and and sustainment. Uh, sustainment is clearly the on-vessel servicing on a day-to-day -day basis. Now, we have staff at Fleet Base East in Garden Islands uh, in Sydney and at Fleet Base West um, in Henderson um, and Garden Island uh, West, where we are working on six classes of vessel um, through the course of the year, whether they're uh, frigates, destroyers, mine hunters, LHDs, oilers, and so forth. So that about 40 to 45% in defence on an, any given year, uh, a large proportion of that um, is going to be in that sustainment uh, category. Um, and then on the defence manufacture, that that's far more sporadic. Um, what do you mean by sustainment? You mean the supply of spares and, and replacement parts? 
Uh, no, it's more than just replacement of parts. It's actually performance of the maintenance work. Um, so in defence, uh, where we would where you might use the term maintenance, um, the term in defence is sustainment. Um, so um, it, it's always surprising uh, the number of vessels that, which are in dock at any time um, and they will be doing upgrades on, on the, any number of items uh, on the vessel. Uh, it could be a breakdown maintenance, so it could be an urgent repair, it could be a planned repair. Um, but this is a substantial ongoing program uh, for all vessels in the fleet. Um, so when I talk about sustainment, it's that sustainment, uh, that's on, it's the day-to-day -day maintenance of the vessel. Uh, it could be replacing items on a crane or pin stabiliser, you name it. Uh, there's literally thousands of parts uh, uh, to making up any uh, of those vessels and they all undergo you have workshops on the east and west base, do you, or, or do you just have people there? Yeah, we've at uh, Fleet Base East, uh, Garden Island, uh, we would only have a small, um, what you might say, containerized uh, small workshop capability. Anything with of any substance would go to our St Mary's workshop. Um, so we have uh, two. Uh, fitting bays there, so we'll do re refits on any any number of uh, items, uh, which will be sent out to St Mary's uh, for repair and return to to the vessel. So, so if I understand it, uh, if the 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 ship or the, the boat comes in for for maintenance, for, and uh, whoever's running the project says, "Well, that bit, that bit, that bit, and that bit go to Bacon and Proven, and they'll get that yep. fixed for us, and that yes. goes to yep. somebody else." Yes, that's great. And and in the yeah, in the framework there, um, in either of those locations, west or east, uh, there is quite a number of what would are called repair agents, and we are a repair agent. Um, and there are other repair agents, um, and we um, we do the work, and we would work for um, a prime contractor. It may be. Uh, NSM or it may be Talus, uh, it might be BAE, um, but um, they would be the uh, the entity that is um, issuing the work uh, to the RAs of which we are one. What makes you've been doing that for a while now, by the sound of it, and it's quite mm. a deep relationship. How how mm. do you make that relationship work? Well, the relationship, like. Uh, We've been doing it now since uh, you referred to earlier introduction. Uh, we we manu actually designed and manufactured uh, the davits uh, on the frigates, the FFG and FFH frigates. So they've actually got Baker and Proven davits on them uh, on the current uh, fleet of uh, ANZAC uh, frigates. Um, so once you're on vessel uh, with a product, um, that uh, then put us into the context of, of other manufacturers, but you're coming to the question of maintenance relationships with the, the, the prime contractors. I mean, at the end of the day, it's quite a pressured environment. Um, vessels are coming in, um, there's tight timeframes, there's complexity of work environment, there's other RAs, there's uh, potential for uh, um, conflicts in work areas. So um, at the end of the day, any of these things depend on performance. And if you can perform well and you can communicate well uh, and you can de develop a, a relationship of collaboration and trust, then then that uh, is they're the primary factors uh, in being able to have a successful relationship. Because it won't get, always go perfectly well, will it? At, at some stage or other, your buyer's going to be yelling at you. <laughs> what yeah. are you doing? Yeah. No, no. And that's, that's not uncommon. I mean, um, absolutely, you do not live in a perfect world. And um, whenever you, we're, we're going to be dealing with humans at any level, which is always going to be the case, um, despite any amount of training or communication, mistakes uh, still can happen. Then it's a case of how do you react to that? How do you respond? Um, and, uh, and it's a case of, okay, well, we've, got a, we've got a joint problem here. Uh, we need to work most effectively to resolve that, uh, resolve that issue. But I think 
communication. I think those environments are fairly tough. Um, I think uh, anyone's worked at, say, Garden Island in Sydney for any number of years would recognise that it's a it's a really reasonably tough environment. Um, and um, uh, you really need to encourage that sense of, okay, well, let's work on this issue together rather than be sort of pointing at each other, uh, looking for uh, the for someone to, to blame, as it were. Yeah, find solutions rather than blame. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Must, uh, there must be some bad days there. Uh, mm. And I think that, you know, that, that, that helps if you know that you've got some, uh, you know, some, some skin in the game. You've been there for a while. Uh, you've been mm. through these things. Uh, mm. it, uh, it must be helpful to have a, a, a career behind you. Baker and Proven have more than just the sustainment armor. You, 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 you sell a lot of products that you bought from your suppliers overseas, if I understand the story correctly. Yeah, we don't, um, we don't sell the products so much. It's more a case of having established relationships with a number of uh, OEMs. Uh, so that's the original equipment uh, manufacturer. So as I said earlier, literally there's thousands of items on any vessel. Um, once we're on vessel from about 1990, um, that gave us the opportunity to um, develop relationships with other uh, OEMs. So, um, so therefore, there's a number of uh, suppliers of equipment out of Europe. Um, and over the ensuing years from 1990, we developed relationships with a number of those uh, European suppliers. So it may be uh, a Spanish crane company or companies, uh, Italian, uh, French. Um, and over the years, uh, we've established uh, effectively service agreements with those companies. Um, so it's not so much um, selling their product, it's really servicing their product as their preferred uh, repair agent, uh, and therefore, um, if those parts are required, obviously we bring those parts in uh, from the original manufacturer, and we will then fit those parts and test the the piece of equipment uh, that's uh, been repaired. It's a great story. Uh, so you, you do a lot of work uh, on on shipping in in various other platforms. Yeah. Uh, the OEM suppliers defence, uh, and you are the the, the go to person on on site, in other words, in Australia for yeah. uh, what happens next. Let's uh, let's take a break. When we come back, let's talk about how you built that relationship because that's the supplier relationship that we keep talking about, and that I'm mm. really keen on. So I'll be interested to learn how you built relationships with OEMs. Back in a minute. Good. Thank you. If you have supply chain or business improvement challenges, contact AI Group's Business Improvement and Growth Hub. The Big Hub is a library of practical and relevant resources designed to assist member businesses to grow and improve. The Big Hub also includes an extensive network of experienced, pre-qualified business improvement consultants. For more details, contact big at aigroup.com.au. That's big at aigroup.com.au. I'm speaking to Mel Ho uh, from Baker and Proven. I think I pronounced your name right in the intro, but uh, my apologies if I did. Uh, and we're just talking about OEMs, uh, the original equipment manufacturers who supply the complex platforms of defence, and then you are involved in the local relationship. How did you go about uh, identifying who to go and talk to? Uh, difficult for me to to, be, to say with any uh, clarity because these the relationships were created. Uh, no, of course, probably, it's before you. Yeah, <laughs> ten years or, or twenty years before my arrival. Well, well how, um, that with, uh, how was the relationship when when you arrived? When when you turned up, you, you obviously did a trip around the world to find out uh, what was the yeah, relationship uh, like. I, I, I think there's one thing. Uh, one of the lessons of COVID is there's no substitute for actually meeting people face to face. Um, and one of the real uh, challenges everyone became ultimately familiar with Teams and or, or Zoom or some alternative. But um, those mediums are okay if you've already got an established relationship, but they're not so good uh, if you're trying to create relationships from the start. 
Um, they're not so good when you're dealing with people with strong accents and it's difficult to actually uh, clarify what has been said and, and, and what has been agreed and so forth. So um, to have the opportunity middle of last year to go back um, for the first time in three years and certainly first time since I've been here to meet with our uh, European partners was, was invaluable. Um, and therefore, um, to be able to sit across the table, uh, to under, read the body language, to, to have that just more natural uh, familiarity of interaction rather than the slightly more structured approach of a Teams or, or a Zoom or something um, was invaluable. And then to just go off and uh, have lunch or something. And, um, but that war developing that warmth of relationship uh, is critically important, uh, I think. Um, and obviously you've got the commercial side of it, and, but um, um, certainly that personal relationship side is, is very important. What sort of, what are you trying to establish the most? Uh, your credibility, uh, their credibility, uh, their, uh, their ability to deliver, your ability to deliver. What, what, what are the touch points? Um, I think a lot of it's just around uh, maintaining continuity of communication. Um, these relationships aren't just one or two years old. They're, they're, they're 5, 10, 15, 20 years old. So, yeah. But in any organisation, you've got changing people. So I'm, I'm new to Bacon Provence. So uh, therefore, if I'm dealing with the, the, the head of uh, Ferry Cranes or something in Spain, he's never met me before. Um, so therefore, and similarly, you could look at, uh, any of those uh, European suppliers, and they will have had a change of personnel in the last ten years. So unless you keep um, keep abreast with that constancy, uh, regularity of uh, personal contact, you, you tend to lose track. And so therefore, you can say, "Well, we've had this relationship for ten years," but if you've let it drift, um, then um, that's that's not a good thing. So um, so therefore, uh, as I say. I can't uh, emphasise more the importance of, uh, uh, of developing those personal relationships and making sure that there's you're keeping abreast of change of personnel uh, over time uh, on either side. As well as that, the needs of the Australian Defence Force and what the, your OEMs are producing are changing. How do you keep up to date with that? Um, in terms of this, the work that we're doing on vessel in sustainment, the needs haven't changed substantially. Um, the, the nature of the equipment has been on vessel for, for many years. Yes, there's upgrades. Um, for instance, uh, there'd be one of the uh, flight deck cranes on the um, uh, on the LHDs that we upgraded in the last twelve months. So therefore, there's certainly upgrades uh, in capability happening fairly constantly. Um, but in terms of the, I guess, the nature of the process, um, it's fairly constant uh, in that respect. What about the digitalization of your processes and their processes and defences process? We see a big push towards um, a digitalised process and there's a lot of efficiencies in digitalization. but mm. everyone tends to go down these different paths. Have you got any, some way in which you can keep all the different uh, platforms talking to each other and working. Uh, have, you, have you got this solved yet? Yeah, digitalization has probably been more of a feature on on our manufacturing side than um, than on our sustainment side. But mm -hmm. certainly, um, we're substantially paperless, um, and therefore uh, communications uh, with the primes. Um, it's all. Uh, it's all. Uh, digital um, um is, is that via a portal or how do you, how do you yeah yeah so there'll, there'll be portals and reporting mechanisms to to the prime contractor platforms um so therefore that uh, aspect of um electronic uh data storage uh traceability um that's uh that's all quite comprehensive uh in terms of that environment, um, but certainly on the manufacturing side, um, uh, there's certainly opportunities there for for improvement in process um, through, uh, I guess, more digitalization uh, in there. 
what are the disruptions? Uh, we are seeing a whole bunch of disruptions around the world. We've got geopolitics and we've got mm. uh, uh, global inflation, uh, inflation mm. operating at different levels around the world. Uh, and of course, decarbonisation is coming in at various stages and different paces around the world. Is that difficult for you when managing with your your, your international suppliers or your relationship, international relationships? Uh, no, I think the main disruptor in the in the last uh, few years has obviously been COVID and the impacts of, on supply lines and costs and uh, volatility of costs. Um, uh, but um, other than that, uh, I think. The other big feature, um, which is uh, a challenge for all companies at the moment, is, is skilled staff. Um, and this is a massive challenge. Uh, if you travel internationally, I was in uh, uh, Korea last year and I was talking to one of the major manufacturers about their skilled um, trade uh, positions and they were finding a challenge and you normally think of a career as some, somewhere that is probably well supplied with trade staff but uh, it's not the case and you can go anywhere in the world uh, and it'll be a common problem. So that has been a um, problem for us uh, and also the impact of COVID wasn't just on supply lines, it was on uh, uh, immigration of skilled, skilled people to Australia. So over a three-year period where you did not have virtually any immigration, um, whether that was 400,000 or 500,000 people who didn't come to Australia, uh, they're not all machinists, but certainly uh, there would have been a number of machinists, fitters and fabricators that would have otherwise come. So um, that's uh, one of our biggest uh, constraints on our on our growth is really uh, access to a skilled workforce. What's the answer? Have you, have you worked out some sort of Work around, or have you, have you sold? The uh, we've got, we've got, uh, I guess, what you call a three-pronged approach to it. Um, one is our apprenticeship program, but you'd have to say that's a long-term commitment. But at the moment, we've got twelve apprentices um, in Baker and Proven, um, and um, so we are catering for the future. We take a long-term view with our apprentices. We we don't uh, employ apprentices for. Uh, for four years and then think that we're going to lose them, uh, we need to provide a challenging uh, and satisfying environment where they want to stay working for us. And so any apprentice we put on, we I put on with the view that they're here forever. Uh, that may not be the case, but we certainly take that long-term view. Yeah. So the apprenticeship program is important. One good thing we've found there is um, a, a good avenue through what adult apprenticeships because... A lot of um, young people may not be sure what they want to do at 16, 17, 18. Um, they sort of may drift around in their career for a while and they get to mid to late 20s and they think, actually, I think I'd have really liked to have done uh, boiler making or I'd like to have done machining. And, and we've been able to pick up uh, out of our 12, probably seven are adult apprentices. And uh, I would say that's been very successful for us because you've got people who've um, looked around the workplace for a while, they've concluded what they really want to do, um, and there's a bit more maturity uh, as well, plus some um, probably some skills with the workplace. So the apprenticeship program is one. Local recruitment uh, is the second uh, avenue, but we're all fishing in the same pool. Um, so. The, the capacity to recruit locally um, is clearly there because people will move around companies uh, for one reason or another, um, but there's a limitation on that. Uh, and our third approach is international recruitment. Um, so we've now got three um, international trades people have joined us in the last uh, two to three months, and we've got another two or three in the pipeline uh, that should be joining us over the next few months as well. Um, so as I said earlier, one of our biggest constraints to growth is actually having the skilled workforce. And um, so we're addressing it in those three ways of apprenticeship, local recruitment and international recruitment. Yeah, it's a, it's a problem for everyone. Uh, I agree with mm. some stats a while ago. Uh, mm. that, uh, India is now the most populous nation in the world, it's, it's mm. part of China. Uh, and mm. India has a school shortage. <laughs> mm. Yeah, <laughs> they've got yeah, access yeah, to a yeah. lot of people, but there's still a school shortage because the skills are changing, uh, are changing 
changing a lot. What do you think uh, is the challenges ahead then, apart from school shortage, which is going to be around for a little while over the next few years? What What are you focusing on to ensure the continued success of uh, Bateman Prison? Well, I think uh, one of the is I think staff retention is is, is significant issue because once you've uh, been able to recruit someone, um, and obviously I think the success of any business is uh, largely dependent on the quality of their people. Uh, so if you have been able to recruit, one of the big challenges I think for any company these days is the almost the transience of the of the workforce because when mm-hmm. when we I guess we were much younger and, and and certainly my father my father only had worked for one company um, and and uh, I think that would be if you went back 30 40 years it was the experience of life people tended to work for one or two companies in their career I was at a social uh, commentators uh, talk a number of years ago and he said look in the current generation I think it was something like an individual might have actually four different careers not four different jobs um and and possibly 17 jobs in their lifetime so this is a i think this is a huge challenge for us and for anyone is okay we've got some we've been able to recruit good people we've been able to develop good people but there's almost this sense of oh i'll look at my cv and i think it'd be look good on my cv if i spend a few years here and then i can move over and and get a, a different uh experience on my cv so i think that is a that's a significant problem for us, and I reckon for a, a number of others, is how do you retain, develop, continue to challenge, and continue to provide career opportunity um, to talented uh, people uh, when part of their interest is actually yeah I'm quite enjoying my time at Baker and Proven, but there's always the challenge of the what next question and what 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 are they looking for next and can we provide it to them so I think. That's that's a significant uh, issue uh, for us, and I think for any other any company as well. Yeah, I uh, I was one of those people when I was a young manager. We we did some social training where they said that the, the staff of the future might have several different careers, uh, and I've mm. had several different careers. I've moved in and out of you know, various sections of the supply chain, and in, in, in overall, has been in the supply chain and in business. Uh, all my career, but I, I mm. worked in sales and I worked in demand, and I worked in supply and I worked in logistics. Uh, and um, my dad, <laughs> my dad worked for Qantas for 35 years as a fitter and turner, but until the day mm. he died, he still kind of talked about the fact that, yeah, but I started at the Sydney Water Board and then I finished my apprenticeship and went over to Qantas. And there's always this kind of a, a thing hanging over his head that he was terrible because he'd had two, two employers rather than just one. Because a lot of people his age just had one. It's a, a whole new world, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, and I think, I think uh, therefore, when you're looking at employing someone, um, the reason they stay is not just for the money. The money is obviously a significant factor. But there's also the what's the working environment? What's the uh, – are they enjoying working the, with their colleagues? What's the culture of the company? Um, is this a good place to work? Um, so – I think employers need to be looking at uh, certainly the non-remuneration aspects of employment uh, to provide that additional sense of attachment uh, uh, to the company uh, beyond uh, the pay packet. It's been a fascinating conversation. You've, you've given us great insights into the idea of how you manage relationships in a number of different ways. You, you said you look forward as a manager, as a, as a leader. You have forward-looking deep relationships across the world and with your buyers. Uh, and now you're talking about your employers, employees as well, making sure that you're offering them what they need. Mm. Uh, the sort of theme through all of this is about how you, how you engage with people. Mm. Yeah. With... A business that's been around for 75 years, though, it's more than just the people. Uh, one of the biggest issues of, of surviving is cash flow and understanding assets and understanding the basics of business. Can I just talk to, to me about that? Is it different, it's, it's different for a small business, isn't it? Because it's not just numbers on a page. It's that real, this means a lot to, to us. Yeah. You know, certainly uh, <clears throat> it's, it's life and death uh, for certainly smaller companies, uh, and and therefore you're constantly watching your cash flow. Um, and uh, in our case, um, the nature of the manufacturing business is substantially uh, what was is known as a jobbing shop. 
Um, so what you would really like to do is establish a better balance between repetitive longer-term contracts um, versus the short-term uh, one-offs and so forth. And so uh, a significant feature of the St. Mary's workshop is it's substantially a jobbing shop. Um, so when you say, well, what are you doing in three months' time, um, that's less clear because, uh, yes, we've got some longer-term manufacture and maintenance contracts there, um, but substantially, we've got a substantial exposure on actually not knowing what's coming through the door, and therefore it's a, there's a certain hand-to-mouthness to it. Um, and that that is a constant uh, uh, matter. So therefore, in terms of um, future planning, what you're trying to do is actually get more um, longer-term repetitive work uh, into the workshop. Um, so what we're finding, when you asked earlier about our our split between uh, our, our market sectors, um, the major uh, market sector for us in manufacturing is actually rail. Um, so we have uh, both bogey maintenance, uh, uh, which is a constant ongoing program. We're manufacturing uh, parts uh, for, uh, for rail. Um, and that, in fact, is the uh, most substantial ongoing uh, program we have at St Mary's. We've got a small parts section, so we manufacture parts for the mining industry. Uh, and uh, we've uh, also manufactured for um, a number of the, the larger um, equipment suppliers in, in mining as well. Um, so we can make complex equipment um, and some of those bigger programs are good because they're quite extended um, and also servicing just heavy industry uh, with uh, manufacture and uh, and maintenance uh, as well. Um, so that, uh, I guess, a feature there is um, trying to move towards having longer term, uh, more predictable uh, work where you can actually improve the efficiency of operation. One of the exposures on... Oh, one-off jobs is that you've you've you're learning you've got a learning curve on every job, and by the time you've sort of potentially done it well or made a mistake on that job, you your chance to um, implement your learnings is is, is diminished because you're not getting a repeat job. So therefore, if you can get repeat jobs where you can improve your efficiency of operation, that that's 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 ideal. So if you look at the future defence program, um, what uh, although our, our now, manufacturing has been sporadic um, over the years uh, in terms of manufacture. Um, we're moving into a period of much more predictable um, uh, contracts, whether it's on the Hunter program. Uh, and obviously the land for Hunter Phase 3 has been reduced in scale, um, but we've still got uh, uh, hopes and opportunity there. But probably the Hunter program is the one that uh, where we've uh, when we're talking about establishing relationships with European suppliers, that, that a lot of that conversation that we had earlier was in relation to our sustainment piece. But if you're looking at our manufacturing side, um, we've uh, developed uh, good relationships with a number of uh, suppliers to the Hunter program so that we will become uh, their Australian industry partner uh, and manufacturer for that program uh, moving forward. And so if you're looking at more long-term uh, repetitive tasks and, and projects, then that's going to come through programs uh, like that. Well, it's good to hear that you're, you're picking up some, some more repeatable uh, contracts and that there is uh, some growth in that area. It's been a great chat. Thank you very much for your time today, uh, Mal. Um, what about you personally? Are you going to retire again soon? Um, yeah, I'll certainly retire. Uh, we're just not quite sure when at the moment. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I think uh, uh, while the challenge is still there and the enjoyment's still there, then and there's certainly much to achieve uh, at uh, at Baker and Proven. Um, I know that in terms of the Ford Defence Program, we we spoke uh, on a previous occasion about uh, that sovereign capability uh, and so forth. And uh, one of the points I'd like to make is that um, with the future programs. Um, uh, some of it's going to be obviously manufactured in Australia. Some of the products will be manufactured. Some will be manufactured overseas. 
Um, but I think it's important that, through, and certainly from a sovereign capability point of view, that if any product is going to be manufactured um, by uh, an overseas supplier, any of the spares uh, or replacement parts uh, for that equipment uh, should be manufactured in Australia. Um, and that enhances both the Australian capability, but also our sovereign uh, capability and response uh, if we need to, to do that. So that's something that I'd certainly like to sort of see contemplated in supply contracts. Um, if uh, an item is going to come, and obviously there's two choices. There's a base case and an enhanced case being considered in all the uh, defence supply contracts uh, at the moment. Uh, but if the decision actually is to have the item supplied from overseas as a complete manufacturer, um, then I think it's important that any uh, replacement parts uh, have to they have to nominate an Australian manufacturer for those for those parts. But um, yeah, I see I see uh, the forward program is still strong for for Australian manufacturers. I think it's just a case of how you position yourself to take that take advantage of those opportunities. Well, it seems like it makes a lot of sense to, uh, to get it made in Australia, replacement parts. Uh, and there is a lot of talk going on about how we increase uh, sovereign capabilities because the future is uncertain and they keep talking about the, the threat window being greatly reduced. Are you seeing mm. any change in that area? Well, <laughs> the Defence Strategic Review clearly talks about a much closer horizon uh, in terms of preparedness. So where they were t t talking about 10 years, now they're short talking about shorter windows. So you look at the impact on supply. Therefore, if, you, if uh, defence is now trying to be more prepared earlier, um, that will in increase the importance of uh, the program delivery. Um, and that may change the dynamic uh, for Australian industry response uh, as well. Um, so it's just, uh, I think, that uh, the DSR has changed uh, the considerations there, um, yeah. and uh, but I think uh, Australian industry has still got great capability, and I think there's a genuine intent uh, through the Australian industry content um, uh, policies and so forth that Australian industry certainly has plays a significant uh, part. But I think it's a case that we have to stay vigilant to to ensure that that actually happens and it still needs political will uh, and procurement uh, policy to uh, ensure that that uh, achieves the potential that, uh, uh, that that exists we we look forward to following your journey as you uh, uh, as as that unfolds and also as uh, Baker and Proving go from strength to strength. Thank you for your time today, mm -hmm. Mel. Uh, I wish you all the best. Uh, um, I guess uh, we'll put in the show notes how to contact you and how to contact Baker and Proving if anyone wants to. Uh, but all the best. Yeah, thanks, James. It's been an absolute pleasure. Well, that's it for another episode of Supply Circles. Thanks again to everyone for listening and thanks for your feedback. If you have any feedback on today's show and today's interview with Mel or ideas for the future or just want to give me some feedbacks hit me up at uh, james.scotland one t james.scotland at aigroup.com.au or head over to my linkedin page i'd love to hear from you and we'll be back in a fortnight with more insights into the keys to building sustainable supply chains thanks for joining me this is supply circles i'm james scotland bye for now